are listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome back to another, I was about to say, end time edition of Nightlight. But actually today, we're going to learn about the time that begins after the end, after the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the one thousand years of the millennium. And our teacher is going to be one of the grand old 19th century giants of the faith, B.W. Newton. Switch off and switch on to Nightlight. Benjamin Wills Newton was born at Plymouth in England in 1807. He died in 1899. So his life pretty much spanned the whole of the 19th century. And he was one of the early leaders of the Plymouth Brethren, along with his friend J.N. Darby, who he'd met at Oxford. However, after pastoring the Plymouth Brethren for a number of years, in 1847, he split from Darby and the Brethren because of Darby's misinterpretations of prophetic scriptures, particularly Darby's dispensational and pre-tribulation rapture teaching, which Newton called the height of speculative nonsense. Although Newton was labeled as an evildoer and a false teacher by Darby and his followers, other people viewed Newton as the John Calvin of the 19th century, and his friends and supporters during the years of relentless vilification by the Darbyites included Samuel Tregelles, Charles Spurgeon, and George Muller, who wrote, I consider Newton's writings to be most sound and scriptural. My wife and I are in the habit of reading them, not only with the deepest interest, but with great profit to our souls. I regard Mr. Newton as the most accurate writer on religious themes of the 19th century. As a writer, Newton produced more than 200 published works and his great gift was exposition of the scriptures and particularly unfulfilled prophecy. Well, I've now read a number of B.W. Newton's books and they've been so encouraging and enlightening, confirming all that I've been taught about the Antichrist, the last seven years, the second coming of Christ, and particularly the 1,000 years of the millennium, which is the subject of the exposition I'm going to read you on the show today called The Millennium and Israel's Future. We have lately been considering those parts of Scripture which relate to that still future period of Israel's evil history, when, after having returned in hardened unbelief to the land of their fathers, they will stand there as a witness, not of truth, not of that which God's hand can accomplish for blessing, but a witness of that which Satan can cause the human heart to dare in evil. A witness, too, of the righteous judgments of God, when he will plead with them with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. Jerusalem is indeed to be finally a praise in the earth. Her walls are to be salvation and her gates praise. But before that hour comes, she is to be the focus of the earth's evil, the city spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. 
the city in which Antichrist will reign, the city where the witnesses of God shall bear their last sackcloth testimony against the earth's evil, the place where the proud power of man will quench that last light of rejected testimony, just at the very moment when the light of the day of God is about to dawn. Such is one aspect of the future. But the passages just referred to in Isaiah and the Psalms belong to a far different scene. They belong to the hour when the Redeemer shall have come out of Zion and turned away ungodliness from Jacob. Romans chapter 11 verse 26. When Zion shall have been redeemed with judgment and Jerusalem be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. To her, these words are spoken, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 and 2. Distinctively upon thee, at the moment when darkness shall be resting upon all the earth besides. Jerusalem shall be light when the rest of the nations are darkness, and peoples that have not seen the fame nor seen the glory of the God of Israel shall learn respecting both through the lips of forgiven Israel. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 19. Her righteousness shall go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1. And observe how great the glory which this chapter describes as the portion of Jerusalem. How unlike the place hitherto assigned to the earth to the truth and the servants of Jesus of Nazareth. The Gentiles shall come to thy light and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Nations shall hear and bow down. All throughout the world shall own that God hath chosen Israel and Jerusalem. They shall be the center of the earth's government. Wisdom, strength, glory shall acknowledged to be there. The good things of creation, all that is beautiful or precious among the things of the earth, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, the frankincense, the cedarwood, the marble, things which now the evil hand of man grasps, that he might therewith glorify himself and serve Satan, will then be gathered around Israel, to be used by them only for the Lord. All the order and arrangement of life amongst them, whether social or civil or religious, shall bear the impress of holiness unto the Lord. See Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. And therefore, when the multitude of camels and dromedaries of Midian and Ephah shall come and bring to their gates the wealth of the earth, it shall not be used for pride and wickedness, as the harlot of Babylon will in her day use it, but it shall be used to show forth the praises of the Lord. Great personal grace will be needed for this. Man has hitherto loved to glorify himself, 
It's no easy thing, even for the saint, to walk under the sunshine of prosperity. Many who have done well in the furnace of affliction, who have there borne many things and murmured not, but have borne them to the glory of their Lord, have failed when placed in other circumstances, and have shown themselves unable to bear prosperity. But it will be proved in the millennial day that when God's hand reverses the course of the present evil age and appoints the path of prosperity as that in which his people are to walk, that path will no longer be adverse to spiritual life, but the sphere in which it will flourish. He who strengthened his servant Paul to be willingly as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things can by like grace strengthen others when the appointed time for the exaltation of truth comes, to be as a crown of beauty, a royal diadem in the hand of their God. The path of exaltation and glory is indeed very different from that of degradation and scorn. But God's power is sufficient for all things, and one object of his dispensational instruction is to show that his manifold grace is adequate to meet all circumstances and to cause all things, when his hand molds them, to show forth his praise. I need not remind you that there are many other like passages in Isaiah which speak of the outward glory of Jerusalem in the millennial day. When you read these descriptions, remember to contrast them with the picture given in the 18th of Revelation of Babylon, the city of man. There too, all the available resources of earth, so far as man and Satan can command them, are to be gathered. And there too will be seen a mighty system of centralization around which the civilization of earth is to revolve. There too, nations and tongues and peoples are to be gathered, but not for God, not for truth. The glory of Babylon is to be Satan's counterfeit, his substitute for the city of God, a place where he will enshrine falsehood and war against truth. And what is the symbol by which God has morally designated this last great city of human civilization? You'll find it in the 17th chapter of the Revelation. There, the same city is described morally, which in the 18th chapter is described as to her outward glory. A woman arrayed seducingly, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, is the emblem of that great and influential system which will morally characterize the last great city of the day of man. But the scripture also supplies the symbol of that system that shall morally characterize the city of the great king. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, all emblems of glories which have their origin in heaven, not in earth, is the symbol. These emblems are indeed prospective, at least as to manifestation. The system of God 
In other words, God's truth as revealed in his holy word is not now manifested thus. Faith may discern its excellency and realize its coming glories, but as regards the earth generally, it is outcast and in reproach. Men see no beauty in it that they should desire it. The harlot of Babylon will be their idol, nor until the hour comes for Jerusalem to arise and shine will the truth enter upon the hour of its glory. The principles of God, as revealed in his word, are not isolated, unconnected principles. They form a connected and harmonious system. And that system may be denoted by one word, truth. Men, indeed, have apprehended little of that system. And what they have apprehended, they have loathed. And so, in the stead of truth, Satan is permitted to construct another system which the harlot of Babylon symbolizes, but which will triumph at the last. Which of these two systems will be established in and adorn the city of the great king? Great and wonderful as the outward glory of Jerusalem will be, yet her chief distinction will be found in her being the city in which truth is established and maintained in supremacy in the earth. What is there in earth so precious as truth? Truth guides to Christ, establishes in Christ, casts down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. To this end, said the Lord Jesus, was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I might bear witness unto the truth. Could Israel be exalted? Could there be made a blessing in the earth apart from truth? Could the walls of Jerusalem be called salvation and her gates praise, unless she were the home and center of truth? No. Jerusalem may be the sovereign mistress of the earth, but truth shall be the sovereign mistress of Jerusalem. The system of God shall rule there, just as the system of Satan shall rule in Babylon. But truth cannot exist in the earth as an energetic, influential ruling system unless it have its servants. It has been a fiction of man to imagine that a body corporately established in the professed place of truth is, in virtue of the place it holds, sanctified, even when the individuals that compose that body are corrupt. But it is an idle dream. Associated action is an engine of mighty power. But the character of such association for good or for evil will depend on the individuals who act. Millennial Jerusalem would soon cease to be the home of truth if her people were not individually true servants of the King of Kings. And here is the importance of remembering the Psalms that I've just read to you. How clearly they mark the character that will individually attach to forgiven Israel in that day. 
What true lowliness and subduedness of spirit are marked in such words as these. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Psalm 131 How different from the character which is attached to Israel up to the present hour. Their brow brass, their neck iron, they themselves unbending as the oak and fierce as the bulls of Bashan. Many bulls have compassed me, said the Lord Jesus. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. But then their spirit will be as that of weaned children. They will be meek and gentle. They will look only to the Lord. They will have learned the lesson to cease from man and will say in truth, let Israel trust in the Lord from henceforth even forever. Observe, too, their unity. Of them it shall be said, Behold how good and blessed a thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Not a pretended unity, not a unity caused by negation of truth, not a unity founded on agreement to differ, not the unity of compromise, but a real unity in truth, a being perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Such unity alone could answer the purposes of God. For his servants are not to stand wavering, doubtful, and undecided in the great contest that's been carried on between falsehood and truth. They are not by mutual concessions and compromises to sink into neutrality, a neutrality that soon becomes indifference. But they are to be energetic, active witnesses to his truth. How could they be this together? unless they thought together. How could they act or testify together if one declared that to be true which the other averred to be false? The spirit of holiness and the spirit of love is also the spirit of truth. I have no greater joy, said the apostle, than to see my children walking in the truth. The combination of truth and love will mark the habits, testimony, and service of Israel then. The blessing of their God will descend upon them in softening and in fructifying power. The 134th and similar psalms show their power of worship and thanksgiving. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all these servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Such words will be living words in the lips of Israel then, not mere expressions, but expressions that show the real, truthful feelings of their soul. Thy people shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21.
In the Old Testament, we learn the sphere in which forgiven Israel will nationally and corporately act in the earth. But in the New Testament, we learn respecting the power which will make them individually what they are as saints, and respecting the everlasting glory which is to be their portion in the new creation, after the millennial heavens and millennial earth shall have passed away. There is one way to life and to the Father, and that is Jesus. And he who receives Jesus, whether in the present or in the millennial dispensation, is thereby brought unto life and unto the Father. And as there are not different ways of salvation, but only one way, so also there are certain fixed results of salvation which are the same to all the redeemed. When the scripture says, whom he justified, them he also glorified. And again, as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. It reveals no mere temporary truths, true in one dispensation and not true in another. He that hath Christ hath all things is an unchanging everlasting truth. These and all other light statements which reveal the fullness of the grace given in Christ Jesus are true of the redeemed of every age and every dispensation. What the epistles reveal respecting the ungenerate heart of man and respecting the way of forgiveness and respecting Christ and union with Christ in glory are everlasting truths, as unchangeable as he from whom they flow. Turn, for example, to the third chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. We there find a description of unregenerate man. Their throat is an open sepulchre, etc. No one, I suppose, will deny that this is true of Israel, of whom and to whom it was primarily spoken. We know that it is true of Jew and Gentile alike. And then, as to the means of deliverance, are there two ways of deliverance? No, there's only one way, that is Christ. There is only one sacrifice, one great high priest, one spirit, one mercy seat. They who are there known of God are known of him in covenant mercy and grace, the grace of the new covenant and all its blessings. But there is no middle place, all else is perdition. Abel, Abraham, David, Paul, and everyone who in the millennium shall believe are alike justified through faith. They're not accepted in the value of their own names. They're accepted by the free grace of God in the value of another's name. Their acceptance rests exclusively on the one oblation once offered. The fragrance of that filled the sanctuary and under that they all equally stand. Where the title is the same, the results must be the same. Accordingly, such passages as the fifth and subsequent chapters of the Romans reveal what the appointed portion of all the justified is. We are there taught not only that they have peace with God, but that they are heirs of his glory. They rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
We are there taught that all who, through faith, receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. They are said to be married unto him that is raised from the dead. The same passage that tells us that there is to them no condemnation tells us also that they are in Christ, that they are joint heirs with him, that they are predestinated to be conformed to his image in glory. Such are the results, the appointed necessary results of redemption. Acceptance according to the love wherewith Christ is loved. Life in Christ, union with Christ, are the appointed inseparable concomitants of salvation. They are the consequences of the great fact that he that who is the sacrifice and the priest is also the beloved son, and likewise the second man, the last Adam. The forgiven through Christ have Christ, and therefore all fullness as their portion. The blessed truth revealed in the fifth of Romans that all the justified are united with Christ as the last Adam, and that therefore they are brought into the glories of the new creation is not a mere occasional truth, truth in one dispensation and not in another. It is the fixed appointment of God in Christ, for which all the redeemed of every dispensation shall, in the ages to come, bless the riches of his grace forever. The millennial saints will be Christians in the same sense in which we are Christians they will be reconciled through the same atoning blood as we. They will have the same everlasting priest. They will have life in Christ risen. They will have within them the new man created according to God. They will receive the same Holy Spirit, for without it they could in nothing please God. They will have the same union with Christ as the last Adam, the same final change consequent on that union, so that as they have borne whilst on earth the image of the earthly Adam, they will finally bear the image of the heavenly. But Israel's final hope is not the millennium. The millennium is neither an eternal dispensation nor one of perfect blessing. The scene of the millennium will not be that new earth in which righteousness shall find an everlasting home, but its sphere will be this present Adamic earth. And Israel in it, though sanctified and blessed, will still be in bodies of flesh and blood with indwelling sin still in them against which they will have to watch. They will still feel the force of those words, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. They will feel it more, because when Satan will no longer be present to tempt, and when the course of the age, instead of seducing from God, will rather lead to him, the virulence of that evil principle within, which still tempts and entices the sin and struggles against God, will be more consciously felt and appreciated. Decay, corruption, sin, death, though repressed during the millennium, 
will not be extirpated. And how different is repression from extirpation? Death, we are told, is the last enemy destroyed. And although Israel will, through grace, remain faithful to the end and be exalted in the earth without being thereby tempted to lift themselves up against God, yet it will be otherwise with the nations. And the millennial earth at the close will be the scene of an apostasy and of a judgment the like to which will never before have been seen. Is such an earth to be Israel's final home? No, like their forefathers, they will look for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They will look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And when they shall have been created, the former heavens and earth, even though they've been the scene of millennial blessedness, shall not be remembered nor come into mind. The Apostle Peter tells us to look forward to those new heavens and new earth. The prophet Isaiah bids Israel do the same. The hope, therefore, of millennial Israel and of ourselves is the same, not the millennial earth, but beyond the millennium, the new heavens and new earth. Nor are the scriptures silent as to the personal condition of those who shall enter that sphere of glory in the new creation. Think of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That chapter expressly treats of the final condition of all the redeemed. And its testimony is briefly this, that all who are of faith, all the redeemed, are in Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Mark the word in. They are in Christ as a new covenant head, and in consequence thereof, they will all finally be changed, changed into his likeness, and will then bear the image of the heavenly, even as they have here borne the image of the earthly. The more closely this chapter is examined, the more it is considered textually, the more the truth of this will be made evident. The millennial saints then will finally rise in the heavenly likeness of Christ. Now think what it is to bear the heavenly likeness of Christ. Think what it is for everything that characterizes fallen humanity here, as seen in the likeness of the first Adam who was earthy, to be gone, and nothing to remain except the likeness of the second man, the last Adam. Redemption brings to this. They who are not brought unto this are not redeemed. Whom he justifieth, saith the scripture, them he also glorified. And the glory is this, the being conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. During the millennium, the only persons who will bear that heavenly likeness will be those who will have risen in the first resurrection. But the very words, first resurrection, imply that there is another resurrection to follow. Accordingly, at the close of the millennium, the millennial saints will also rise in the resurrection of life and will also bear the image of their risen Lord. 
and in the new heavens and new earth will be seen united to those who have gone before, there forming one redeemed body. It is not true, therefore, to say that the church will be complete at the commencement of the millennium. The church of the firstborn ones will, but that very expression, firstborn ones, shows that there are others to follow after. The church of the firstborn ones is only a part of the church. It includes all who have been numbered among the family of faith up to the hour when the Lord Jesus shall return in glory. Abel, Abraham, David, Paul will alike be there. Diverse have been their trials, their knowledge and their experience here. Diverse their dispensational position and privileges. But all these differences will vanish before the mighty power of oneness which is found in Christ their head. By it, they will be brought into equal likeness to him and therefore into likeness one to the other. The earthy characteristics of all will alike be swallowed up of life. Consequently, their understandings, their affections, in a word, all the inward and outward powers of their being will be in all alike perfect. Heaven is not to be a transcript of the differences of earth. These differences are the very things that are to depart from before that power of life and unity that has been established for all the redeemed in Christ. Ever remember then that the church in its eternal sense means all the redeemed, all of every dispensation who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Remember too that there is no redemption apart from union with the person of the Redeemer. Remember these two great truths and they will be to you as beacons to guard you against those quicksands and shoals of error on which many are making shipwreck. The scripture teaches that the title of the redeemed to salvation and all the blessings thence resulting is founded wholly on the imputation of the meritorious service of the holy substitute perfected on the cross. To reject this great foundation truth is to reject Christianity as revealed in the scripture. Abel, Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul, and the millennial saints are constituted righteous by the imputation of a righteousness wrought out and presented to God for them by another. On the one oblation once offered, all their hopes rest. Consequently, they have common hopes, common joys. On this great and everlasting truth, the communion of the saints is founded. But although the final condition of the redeemed, when together brought into the new heavens and new earth, will be one, yet they who are not raised and consequently not glorified into the end of the thousand years cannot, of course, share with the church of the firstborn ones the glories of the millennial reign of Christ. They who rise in the first resurrection will alone share the glories of Christ during the time that he is subduing all enemies. During the millennium, they will only be partners of his throne. 
Yet great as this blessing is, distinctive as is this honor, it is temporary only. The power of the millennial kingdom assumed when the Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days to be invested therewith is to be laid down as soon as he shall have subdued all things and destroyed the last enemy. It is a temporary dispensation therefore, and nothing temporary can be weighed in the scales against that which is final and everlasting. The personal glory of the redeemed as made like unto their risen Lord their reigning in life and their employment in the government of God will not terminate with the millennium. There are ages to come, everlasting ages, in which he will show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us, all his redeemed people, through Christ Jesus. In those ages, they will not cease to reign in life. They will not cease to be kings and priests unto God under their great Melchizedek. Nor will the sphere specifically intended for the display of the glory of the heavenly city be prepared until after the millennium. The heavenly city will exist indeed at the commencement of the millennium, but during the millennium will not have the appointed accompaniments of its glory. The place of its everlasting abode, the sphere and the accompaniments of its glory are to be found in the new heavens and new earth, and they are not created until the millennial heavens and millennial earth pass away and no place is found for them. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. Accordingly, the heavenly city enters not the millennial earth. It descends indeed from heaven, the dwelling place of God, so as to be brought into near connection with the millennial earth, but it is not in it. Just as in Israel's temple of old, the holy place where the golden candlestick was intervened betwixt the external earthly courts and the holiest of all, so the heavenly city where the true candlestick shall be will intervene during the millennium betwixt the earth and the heaven of heavens. During the whole millennium, it is above the created heavens. But when the millennium has passed and the new heavens and the new earth are created, it is seen descending again. And then, and not till then, it is said, the tabernacle of God is with men. Of that hour, it is specifically said that she, the heavenly city, was seen prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. At the commencement of the millennium, which in the scripture is regarded as if it were one day, she's termed the bride, but she's not ushered into her inheritance, the new heavens and earth, until after the millennium has closed. At the time, therefore, when the last portion of the redeemed shall rise in glory, that is, at the close of the millennium, the heavenly city will not have entered upon the final sphere of her glory, and will not have ceased to be called the bride. It has been supposed by some that because the church of the firstborn ones enter upon the church's corporate standing of glory in the heavenly city at the commencement of the millennium, 
Therefore, no others can subsequently be admitted. They have reasoned on the supposition that once a corporate position has been formally taken, it is impossible any individuals should afterward be admitted into that position or its privileges. But is it so? Take Israel for an example. Do they not at the commencement of the millennium assume their corporate standing in the earth? Are they not at that time regarded as the earthly bride married unto the Lord their God? Thy maker is thy husband, Isaiah 54, 5. Thou shalt call me Ishi, i.e. my husband, Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. I will betroth thee unto me forever, Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. Such is the corporate relation of Israel to their God at the commencement of the millennium. But millions of individuals will be added to Israel and be made partakers of their privileges as the millennium proceeds. It is therefore untrue that the possession of a corporate standing necessarily forbids the addition of individuals. Abundant examples of the reverse may be found both in the arrangements of men and of God. In the personal glory of the Church of the Firstborn Ones, the millennial saints will see an example and pledge of their own personal glory. In the collective glory of the heavenly city, they will see an example and pledge of that collective glory which they will finally inherit in the new heavens and new earth. After the scripture has described the introduction of the heavenly city into the new earth, revelation ceases. Beyond that period we cannot go, for scripture is silent. Of the new heavens and new earth, however, we can confidently say that they will be perfect, according to the perfectness of Christ and of God. Nothing that is of the likeness of the first Adam will be found there. This present earth was formed in adaptation to the first Adam who was taken from it. But the new earth will be made in adaptation to the glory of him who is the Lord from heaven. Nothing in the new earth will be unworthy of the heavenly glory of Christ, nor of the heavenly glory of the redeemed. Nothing in it will be unsuited to the unearthly glory and holiness of the heavenly city. It will be as much adapted to the existence of spiritual and glorified bodies as this earth is adapted to the existence of earthly bodies. Yet, it is not the only sphere of glory of the redeemed. They will have other glories, other mansions in their Father's house above the heavens. The name of their God and the name of the city of their God and the name of Christ their Saviour will alike be written on them. In other words, they shall have title of access not only to the heavenly city and new earth, but into that circle of glory which pertains to God as God, and into that circle of glory which pertains to Christ as the Son of Man, risen and glorified, and made the head over all things. The prayer of the Lord Jesus as recorded in the 17th of John embodies the same truth. True heavenly unity, true 
heavenly glory is there declared to be the final portion of all who shall believe. The words bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh involve the same truth. Indeed, he who has Christ has all things, and is not Christ the portion of all the redeemed? We must fail in a proper apprehension of revealed truth if we err respecting the final condition of the redeemed. Hence the importance of seeing that the millennium is not the final sphere. The millennial earth is not the place where the redeemed families of God are to be knit into their final unity of blessing. It is not the place where the flesh will cease to be. It is not the place where the glory of the bride of the Lamb is to be displayed. It is not the dispensation of the fullness of times, for which, the Apostle says, God will gather up for himself all things in Christ. The joy of the millennium, like the wine at the marriage feast at Cana, will fail for black apostasy will mark its close. What if there were no one able to say, Behold, I make all things new? What if the Son of Man were not also the living God? But he is, and therefore there will again spring light out of darkness, joy out of sorrow, life out of death. All will then be ready to say, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. It will be joy greater than all former joys. Joy, too, that will never pass away or be in any wise impaired. For the creature will no longer think or act or feel apart from the might and all-sufficiency of the great I Am. God will be all in all. enjoyed that reading of B.W. Newton's essay from The Millennium and Israel's Future. If you Google B.W. Newton, you can find out a lot more about him. And also you can read some of his other books on Bible prophecy, which are available online. So let's wrap up here and end with a song, one of the many that I have on the topic of the millennium. This one is sung by Jason Lawrence, and the lyrics are all taken from prophecies about the millennium in the King James Bible. I'll sign out here, say bye for now, God bless, and see you next time for another International Nightlight Show. Bye-bye.
Thousand. 